Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host, Michael Wojcik. I'm joined by two friends today. Marie Goshmarek. And Corey. Who are my usual guests. This yep. is episode 18, the long and rambling discussion of Dune. The Duke will die before these eyes and he'll know, he'll know that it is I, then Vladimir Harkonnen, who encompasses his doom. <laughs> So I read this when I was a teenager. Um, I read it originally in high school, and I reread it about a year ago. I read it about two months ago. Once again, I was bored and lonely and hinted. <laughs> a lot came out of that trip, <laughs> literary-wise. It is a book by Frank Herbert, if you didn't know already, since this is a supremely popular mm-hmm. and influential text. First published in 1965. It's a rather tortured publication history in the early days in that I think it was published initially by a company that did vehicle manuals after it had been serialized in another magazine. Needless to say, this is a very dense, a famously dense work. Dense, but not unreadable. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not unreadable, but... The amount of thought that went into the world building is probably its most famous feature. I don't think it's the densest book. Certainly the Book of the New Sun is a lot denser. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. I put this at medium density. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know that it's kind of routinely held up as one of the best works ever produced in science fiction. Mm-hmm. So, on that note, we will provide a plot summary for those of you who haven't read it. At which point you should probably turn off this podcast, Also, go read the book, and then come back. <laughs> also, even I kind of knew the plot before I started reading this, but anyway. Mm-hmm. So, there are two houses in the Galactic Empire. House Atreides and House Harkonnen. House Harkonnen was in control of Dune, otherwise known as Arrakis under its official name, Mm -hmm. a desert planet which provides the spice melange, which the navigators who pilot the interstellar spaceships need in order to do their navigating. The Emperor transfers control of Dune from House Harkonnen to House Atreides. For reasons. For reasons. Other reasons lead to complications and betrayals, and terrible things. But it turns out the main character, Paul Atreides, is on his way to becoming the messiah of this entire universe. Indeed. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, these are the two houses that the book centers around. It's kind of implied they're not the only two houses. Also, you can play both of them in the Super NES game. And House Carino. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Since the book is named Dune, a big focus of the book is also Dune. Mm -hmm. The first thing we're going to talk about is the ecology of Dune. They basically transported all desert-y stuff to Arrakis at some point in the past. So there's eagles, there's, I think, some small kinds of deer are alluded to. It's definitely mice. 
Um, cactuses, mm-hmm. succulents, and worms. Those are native, though. Yeah, that's actually the only native species, as yeah. far as I can tell, beyond a certain kind of bacteria mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. involved in their life cycle. There mm-hmm. are only two really habitable zones mm-hmm. for those who were not born on the planet and acclimatized mm-hmm. towards living in the desert, which are around the poles. Mm-hmm. North Pole doesn't seem to have an ice cap, but the South Pole possibly does. Mm-hmm. Isn't it referenced at one point? I think there is a bit of an ice cap in the North Pole because it's referenced that um, there are people who harvest ice who are water merchants for the planet. That's true. There are. Yeah. yeah. So there are very small ice caps, but otherwise, this, like the planets in. Star Wars mm-hmm. seems to be a single environment planet. And lots of science fiction is being criticized for this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have the desert world, the jungle world, the ice world. But in the case of Dune and with what Frank Herbert does with desert ecology, he actually thinks through Mm -hmm. what it would entail to have a planet that's entirely a desert and Mm -hmm. how you would be able to survive on such a thing Mm -hmm. and whether it is indeed possible to terraform a planet that sort. When are we going to talk about still suits? Because I have a complaint to make about the still suits. We can totally talk about still suits. <laughs> so still suits are these hyper um, scientific devices that people wear. It's basically a cloth of some sort of rubbery-ish texture. And it comes also with a face mask and nose plugs. So that, and all it does is reclaim your water that you would be secreting. Anyway, yeah. So from your, your sweat, your breathing... You're peeing. Also from defecation. And I have a complaint to make surrounding the, that bit, because it's one bit where a character takes off his still suit and he's totally wearing a loincloth. I don't understand how that works. That loincloth would be literally shitty <laughs> in this, if the still suit is supposed to work. You should be naked under this, as far as I can tell. So as we can see here, Frank Herbert didn't go into as much rigorous detail as Marie apparently would like him to. <laughs> That's the only bit that I was really like, really? Everything else I thought was pretty fantastic. I love out of all the crazy sci-fi technologies, your big complaint is that the clothing doesn't 100% make sense. It's just because I just am annoyed because it's one of those moments where the author just couldn't quite bring himself to write in nudity into that scene. It just is annoying to me. There's no reason to have that loincloth other than shame. Yes. Sandworms? Sandworms. <laughs> yeah. Here we go! Yeah. <laughs> well, again, like Michael said, sandworms are the main, if not the only, indigenous life form to Dune. Um, They're literally giant building-sized worms that effectively function the way a normal worm does. They burrow through the sand, they ingest matter, they excrete it out there, and they excrete it, except unlike earthworms or worms on Earth, which just excrete rich, nutrient-rich soil, they actually excrete melange, the spice that kind of forms the main plot point for the narrative. Or at least the reasons for the conflict on Dune. Do they actually speak melange? I thought there was like a pre-spice mass thing and then it sort of explodes and what's-his-face gets sucked under. Yeah, there is a super complicated Mm -hmm. cycle that goes on on this planet. And it seems that not many scientists have actually made the connection Mm -hmm. between the worms and the spice, except Mm -hmm. for the one planetologist who's Mm -hmm. been on this planet. He only figures it out... I think the pre-spice mass <laughs> is 
the worms secrete and you're left with the pre-spice mass and then it kind of needs to effectively ferment for lack of a better term. I would believe that. Yeah. And then it turns into it. I believe that's how it's explained. Mm-hmm. Sure. In any case, the worms are Maybe. essential to creating the spice, but people who harvest spice find them a major inconvenience because they like to eat spice harvesters. <laughs> and people. And anything that makes noise on the sand or is mechanical or... In many ways, it seems like anything that is not natural to do is they're going to eat. <laughs> well, again, the big problem with the worms in terms of dealing with them is that, like I said, they're the size of buildings, and like a small one is about the size of a 20-story apartment block. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also effectively an apex predator, mm-hmm. and they don't really have eyes. I mean, they burrow through the ground. So they, you know, it's like the movie Tremors. They can sense the vibrations on the surface, and mm-hmm. if they think it's anything that might be edible, they will attack and eat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think these creatures are one of the major draws, a kind of very attractive creation. Mm-hmm. And people find them fascinating in reading the book. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're kind of en- emblematic of this entire series. Very much so. And I mean, I might be jumping ahead a bit, but like there are characters who ride them, and that's a very romantic science fiction type moment. Mm-hmm. Taming the home species, which is also mm-hmm. referred to as Shai Hulud. Mm-hmm. Or Shaitan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that they are both gods and demons to the people who live on this planet. I think they, and they also have teeth that are kind of important. So they're not true annelids for any real biology nerds out there. They have these sort of backwards facing fangs that kind of catch at you like shark teeth, as far as I can tell. Yeah, mm-hmm. the teeth are described as being like roughly dagger sized, and um, the Fremen, or the Freeman, however it's pronounced, who are one of the important factions in the story, um, who are a group of people that actually live on Dune, um, collect the teeth from the worms and actually use them to make ceremonial knives, which are also effective beyond just being ceremonial. They are actually quite dangerous and lethal. Mm-hmm. Now, there is water on Dune, mm-hmm. and this is one of the mysteries that the planetologist Liet Kynes was investigating, mm-hmm. is that effectively life shouldn't be possible on mm-hmm. the planet, but it is. Mm-hmm. And water production is tied towards spice production as well. And the worms, again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The worms, I think, are actually allergic to water or something. Well, they'll mm-hmm. die if exposed to water. Yeah. Which, for bio reasons, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's really cool. Because mm-hmm. it leads to some kind of nifty religious-y stuff. And there is a sense... At, at least the Fremen believe, thanks to Liet Kynes, mm-hmm. that the planet can be terraformed in such a way mm-hmm. that humans and plants and this paradisical future can coexist with a band of desert that supports the worms. Yeah, I mean, the plan, as discussed in the book, is to basically have the northern hemisphere terraformed and made habitable, and to leave the southern hemisphere's barren desert where the worms still live and the spice can still be produced. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting was just the idea that there had to be some ambient moisture, so they just have moisture collectors that sort of just comb the air for random molecules of H2O and condense them. And then there's the ice caps that we already mentioned. There's also, I think there's also sort of theoretical underground stores, which as we learn are less theoretical than you might think on Dune End, but I'm not entirely sure where how this sum total increase in water is supposed to happen. 
where it actually all is. But it was, it's good. The scarcity of water is ever present in the text, and it's kind of an interesting thing of how of how Frank Herbert manages to make thirst and the need for water this huge political economic thing. Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting that the Galactic Imperium it would not be so keen mm-hmm. on this terraforming venture. Mm-hmm. Again, the reason Dune is so important is we mentioned all this conflict is over the spice, mm-hmm. and um, as Michael mentioned, the navigators for the spaceships use it. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe what the spice does? I mean, it almost if it the spice expands consciousness. <laughs> It's kind of a hallucinogenic drug. There, it, yeah, it has hallucinogenic properties. It almost creates extrasensory perception as well that's mm-hmm. relevant in a way. In the particular case of the book, this sense that it kind of creates in the users enables mm-hmm. people to navigate through it space. extends life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that too. Again, it is a little vaguely defined, but it's... There's kind of enough detail to imply that you can't navigate through space without it, and for a spacefaring society, that's obviously a very crucial resource. I think part of that has to do with navigating through time in a space-time continuum, because there's a lot of stuff. When I think when we talk about Paul more specifically, we can talk about when about how his time sense changes every time he's exposed to melange. Also, that the spice is addictive. Mm-hmm. It turns your eyes blue. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, and not just the irises; like your whole eye goes blue, white part included. Yeah. Well, I always imagine the spice is red, <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. So moving on from the topic of ecology, <laughs> one last thing is that I found it refre- kind of nice that Frank Herbert did go to the effort of making different kinds of sand mm. and rock face. Dune isn't just one big dunescape; it's lo- it has lots of different types of actual landscape. From sort of salt plains, which sort of implies that there was water there at some point. <laughs> so even from a planet that's supposedly all one ecosystem, you do get a surprising amount of diversity. Mm-hmm. Yes. So moving on from ecology and the makeup of this planet and the rather deep depths of world building that we've been talking about, the reason why Dune is so important is because the navigators are needed because computers don't exist in this future society. We are going to talk about attitudes towards technology. Mm -hmm. Mainly, a lot of it is considered bad. People don't even really use an abacus, (laughs) even. (laughs) Dude, they... Basically, the forms of transport are, I think, the most technological things that, that there are, and they're still kind of mechanically... I'm going, to sp- I'm going to dispute that a little bit. Um, forms of transport are obviously the main form of technology we see. Um, environmental technologies, though, technologies that make things livable, um, the still suits mm-hmm. or the moisture collectors, at one point there is a hydroponics bay. Mm-hmm. So it's not that technology isn't used, it's that it's largely functional, like in a very concrete, overt way. There's very little in terms of technology that requires abstract thought. Yeah. Um, yes. There are energy shields, but that's really the only excessively high-tech thing that's referenced. And laser guns. And laser guns, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, everything else is a fairly seemingly mundane, realistic form of technology, even if it does require a little bit of science fiction to create. That's kind of, though, it's just that nothing really requires a computer. Even the softwares, I think, are completely mechanical. entirely mechanical. As far as I could tell, there was no like, talk of systems or, I think... <laughs> 
Yes. In this universe, technology is very highly regulated. Mm -hmm. There is a reason for this, mm -hmm. because in our future timeline, the machines, the AIs took over. Mm -hmm. And there was a great rebellion called the Butlerian Jihad. Mm -hmm. And after this, in order that this sort of thing could never happen again, mm -hmm. it has been banned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, People are effectively turned into computers called mentats. They're trained to act as computers, but mm -hmm. there are no independent AIs mm -hmm. that do navigation or run spaceships mm -hmm. or any of that. And some of that is fitting because a human brain should be technically more capable of, of some computations than a computer. Mm -hmm. so, and the kind of things that people are like, use the mentats for it seems to be mainly political intrigue. So those are the only people who can afford the services of a Mentat seem to be those who are already quite powerful to start with. Yeah, and I mean, the Mentats are largely computers in the traditional sense, where there's a lot of, effectively, they do very complex mathematics that can be used to predict or kind of determine certain events. They do probabilities. Yeah, effectively, that's all they do. <laughs> um, one big example of technology that is worth mentioning as well, though, I mean, this book was published in the 60s, so Cold War Paranoia. Um, nuclear weapons still exist. They're referenced as being the house atomics. So each noble house has their own cache of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So, and again, it's very similar idea of, oh, you know, they wouldn't risk doing that because of this or because we'll nuke them. But it, I mean, it does come into the plot that a few of them get used. But again, it's still very much a real world technology that we can conceive of. Something that helps... Uh, the atmosphere of this book, because the political system is so heavily feudal and rigid, mm -hmm. is that the actual weapons that they use are generally not projectile weapons, thanks mm -hmm. to the Holtzman shields, yep. which effectively can stop bullets, meaning that people now, for the most part, will use swords mm -hmm. and knives in combat. Yeah. And you can't use a laser gun on a shield because you cause a giant explosion. So there's a wonderful cancelling out of the technology there. <laughs> what, what makes the shield so special, um, like Michael said, they can stop... Um, they're designed to, to stop things that travel at a high velocity. So they'll stop bullets, they'll stop anything that's thrown too fast, or it's even referenced at one point where Paul, the main character, is doing a fencing lesson, how you need to time your thrusts properly, because if you stab too fast, the shield will deflect it. Mm -hmm. So you need to be slow enough to get through the shield, but quick enough to still injure your opponent. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an interesting point where te this technology clashes with Dune, where Sandorms, for some reason, are infuriated by shields and will be attracted to, attracted to them and trash any, anything in the vicinity. So on Dune, you have a further regression where you can't use a shield in large parts of the world. Mm -hmm. What makes that also special, though, is later on in the story, the Fremen are able to take advantage of some weapons that nobody would think to use in this universe. Um, it's mentioned how they use things like rockets, which, again, no one uses because a shield will stop them. But if you can't risk using a shield on this planet, it's a perfectly valid option. And I think also Baron Harkonnen uses... Um, Artillery pieces. Artillery, yeah, <laughs> at one point. And then basically says, well, we can't use that again because they'll be expecting it. <laughs> but. Well, I mean, it's very much the idea of superior technology being context-dependent, I would mm -hmm. say. Because, I mean, again, you've got a universe where something as simple as a rocket-propelled mm -hmm. grenade is an obsolete technology mm -hmm. most of the time, but in the circumstances of this one planet, it becomes very much a superior technology and a superior weapon system because the technology that normal can normally cancels it out is in turn cancelled out. 
there's another duel that Paul Atreides has later on against where he's not shielded against a Freeman guy. This is a very plot important moment. But an interesting part of that is that he takes longer to defeat his opponent because he's used to fighting with shields, so he's a little bit too slow. He because he's still doing his gestures, like you said, slow enough to get through a shield, but not quite fast enough to kill a person who's not used to fighting with a shield. Mm -hmm. And I found these tight technological controls on the story mean that we have a big sweeping space opera, mm -hmm. but unlike a lot of big sweeping space operas, we're not focused on the mind-bending technologies and giant spaceships. It's a very human-centered story. Which I think is a good thing. I mean, it, may, it makes um, the characters are much more interesting, for one, and I think the universe itself is made more interesting, because you, you're not gawking at the spaceships, you can actually experience the world they're built in. I mean, to talk about still suits again, they are the most elegant piece of technology in Dune. It's amazing to have a, a device that can reduce your water loss to something like 2% or half a percent in the conditions suggested here. That would be something that you would have to have as necessary. And it's how it's made is sort of unclear. I sort of get this impression that it's some kind of nanotube thing or something on that level of complexity, or at least layers of materials that somehow interact. I'm not sure exactly how the Freemen make it, because I know Fremen make it, because I know they do, but it's, I think, more... It's both more complicated, but yet somehow simple enough that these, these guys can throw it together mm -hmm. where they are. So we've now talked about the environment and technology, mm -hmm. which will bring us to the people who inhabit Dune. Mm -hmm. namely the Fremen, who mm -hmm. we've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. A desert people mm -hmm. with a touch of Orientalism about them. Oh, just a hint. Just, just a bit, yeah. yeah. It's a bit problematic, actually. <laughs> yeah, this book was does come out of the 60s, when generally any kind of desert people in science fiction would invariably be Arabs. Mm-hmm. Which is very evident here. Yeah. <laughs> what I find interesting is um they're they're very culturally meant to be Arab, but the physical descriptions given given of many of them, they they look the way they're described very European. Yeah, well, that's just white people <laughs> taking over lots of things. No, and again, I realize that that I I think you could argue that's one of the many reasons it becomes more problematic. Yeah. Because you're appropriating yeah. the culture and you're not even making the people of that culture represent itself. Yeah. Yeah, especially because the religion that's followed among the Fremen is only Islamic in its trappings, mm -hmm. and some of the words, choices that are used are supposed to sound very er vaguely Arabic, mm -hmm. but a lot of their old religion seems to owe more to a, to best put it as a vaguely Eastern feel. There's <laughs> a certain amount of Buddha kind of stuff yeah. going on in Buddhism, there. Hinduism... Mm -hmm. I mean, it, this is not referenced in the book. I think you could make an argument for kind of religion evolving over, you know, many thousands of years and kind of reaching that point where, like you said, the trappings are there, even if the ritual very much the structure is not. But again, th there's no detail in the book to imply that happened. Any, any conclusion like that is merely interpretation based on no evidence. I think worth pointing out that the religion on Dune is... In some ways, planted because by a certain by a certain mm -hmm. group way back in yonder days, planning for things, put the seeds of these rituals in, and they grew. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> whatever names, whatever names, or whatever traditions are kind of being mimicked 
to create the scene. Um, it's very much a unique religious culture for this book. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a messianic culture, but it's not one that has its messiah figure. It's one that's waiting for its messiah figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've got elements of animism in here as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. It's really quite a mixture. The only religion I think that's explicitly named in Dune is Catholicism. The and OC. you were talking about how religion has become almost unrecognizable and mixed in the far future and how you that's just you extrapolating from what's in the text. But... In the case of the Catholicism that's explicitly called Catholicism in Dune, it doesn't resemble mm-hmm. modern-day Catholicism in any way. Their Orange Catholic Bible, mm-hmm. any passages that are cited in Dune mm-hmm. are not in the Bible <laughs> that we know of today. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe my interpretation's not too far out then. Yeah. I mean, yeah. again, like we mentioned the Orientalism, it could be considered as problematic. I, I think it could also be considered something very clever on Frank Herbert's part. I think it's a reasonable explanation. It still doesn't get rid of the problematic parts of the Orientalism. No, no, no I, I wouldn't claim it does. But... but it's you can kind of forgive it and keep reading it. Yeah, and that the main thrust of this plot is still a very old story mm-hmm. of an outsider coming to a new culture and becoming the leader of that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, an outsider from an explicitly conquering culture mm-hmm. over this entire galaxy mm-hmm. being able to do everything better mm-hmm. than the people indigenous to the planet themselves where that ties in though like i said messianic figure um part of their belief structure part of the prophecy that they're kind of talking about is when their messiah figure comes he'll already know their ways mm-hmm. and it's referenced how paul the first time he puts on a still suit just does it properly even though it's apparently a procedure that's quite quite easy to screw up if you're not shown it mm-hmm. and there's other things where he just seems to know how to do it so you, you get this very weird magical mysticism element of the novel as well largely expressed through the religious elements because there's lots of magic in there's Dune. so much magic good transition chord <laughs> oh that was a transition you're trying to make anyway yep oh okay. yeah so in that like many 60s novels it's considered science fiction to talk about mind-expanding mm-hmm. kind of themes in terms of telepathy or being able to move things with your mind or influence things. I wonder how much mind. of this came out of a basic ethnographic theory mm-hmm. of how science and magic were ultimately kind of similar thinking patterns. So I was going to go the other way, I was going to, or a very different direction. I was going to say I wonder how much of that is just typical 60s experimenting with mind-altering substances. That could be a bit of both. <laughs> Counterculture, new mm. ageism, the time. Mm. What I love is how sciency the magic gets, however, because there's uh, Jessica. I think works two particular pieces of magic that I think are are kind of exemplary. One's that she's able to change a poison molecule in uh, water, in a drink of some of some kind, into. Basically forming a prion reaction, if you sort of think about it, uh, prion-like, where one, where with her mind she goes to a molecular level and changes one molecule, which causes a um, chain reaction. Yeah, a chain reaction, which they all change into that molecule, which is kind of cool. And then the other ones that she does is sort of a um, psychological ability to really just sort of read body language to the point that she can basically read your mind. And also speak body language louder than you can. 
to make you have a Psychic reaction that you want. As yeah. Well. yeah. Well, I mean, what's what's fun? What's interesting and fun about those elements of the story is they're given a very in a very science fiction-y way, they're given very scientific-sounding explanations. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- this is not magic. This is a skill that, you know, they've trained and cultivated mm-hmm. in an almost monastic way. And how it's just, oh, you know, you're just using what's there or you're learning mm-hmm. to very minutely control fine motor details down to the point where you can be twitching, mm-hmm. like, the tip of your finger muscle, but mm-hmm. that's all that's moving. And, I mean, again, obviously this is ridiculous. I mean, it is very much magic. Mm-hmm. But there's at least an effort made to give the trappings of science. I think what Dune does on an individual level is what um, the Foundation Trilogy does on a global scale. Because I feel mm-hmm. like we're, in that case, that sort of sociology ruling the world. Dune kind of has psychology ruling, ruling the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Jessica, who mm-hmm. Marie mentioned as part of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, mm-hmm. who have essentially used these skills to weaponize religion in mm-hmm. a sociological way, and that mm-hmm. they're able to plant mm-hmm. seeds to make the planets they want mm-hmm. to introduce their sisterhood to more accepting mm-hmm. of their introduction. They've weaponized culture, really. Yeah. <laughs> in a certain way. And politics, because that's what they do, is they move politics the way they want it to go. <laughs> I think you could almost call it a social commentary, though, because, mm-hmm. I mean, name one culture that hasn't weaponized religion to some extent. I'm not accepting your dare. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, I mean, th- that's my point, though. I, I think there might be... I mean, there are many things in this book. Mm-hmm. I don't think a little bit of satire is too far reaching. I, I think that is something of a scathing commentary on Frank Herbert's part. Mm-hmm. Yes, and one part of this weaponization of religion that Bene Gesserit is taking part in is planning to create a messiah rather than waiting for one. Quisatz <laughs> Haderach? Yes. <laughs> Who will access... Another part of consciousness, I suppose. <laughs> and this is sort of what I think is to do with sort of the space-time, mainly time, influences of Melange, where Paul Atreides, whose mother is a Bene Gesserit and who's also got Mentat training, brings together the male and female aspects at their full potential, mixes it with Melange, and then he has these powers which honestly are not really that useful. <laughs> Uh, he's able to foresee all possibilities of time in a pro- prophetic kind of way, but he's not really able to predict which way he's going to go necessarily. And he's, while while he seems to be aware of what's going to happen, he doesn't seem to necessarily be able to have full control over well, that I mean, future anyway. Basically what it is, is mm-hmm. statistics gone rampant reduced to the human level. I mm-hmm. mean, like you said, every possibility that the future could hold is shown to him and he's able to in some ways, choose which path he mm-hmm. follows. Yep. I mean, again, a large part of the book is him learning how to develop that skill. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't quite master it by the end of the story. Yeah, which is... Um, which is kind of an important plot detail. And I know we're not going to talk about sequels so much, but I don't think he stops that jihad from happening. <laughs> well, it's very much part of this mm-hmm. book in complicating mm-hmm. the general messiah narrative mm-hmm. that Paul is supposed to be taking part in, mm-hmm. and that he knows mm-hmm. what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and yet he doesn't want it to happen, and yet he doesn't seem to be able to stop it. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he knows he knows his ascension to a messiah figure will cause mm-hmm. a galaxy-spanning genocidal holy war. Mm-hmm. That will unleash, I mean, countless misery and destruction and suffering in his name. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want that to happen. 
But he, like, this is why I said his power seems to be kind of useless, because he can't actually do anything about it. I think there's even one point where he sees a very narrow way where it could potentially not happen, but I don't think he achieves it. There's even a point where he realizes that the jihad's gonna happen and he can't stop it. <laughs> well, he's also an unplanned messiah in mm -hmm. that the Bene Gesserit did not, are actually actively against him ascending as the Kwisatz Haderach, because... He goes outside of the genetic plans that they were putting together and might, in fact, mm -hmm. not be the perfect being that they wanted. Mm. Well, part of the problem is he goes outside of their plan, and the key aspect of that is he's outside of their control. Mm -hmm. They're trying to create a messiah figure, yes, but they're trying to create a messiah they control. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about all these breeding pro yeah, programs... Yeah, this huge eugenics... Yeah. Which is really 60s <laughs> and really problematic. Well, again, I think intentionally so. I, I don't think mm -hmm. the novel saying eugenics is a good idea. I think mm -hmm. that, it, that that's uh, meant to be problematic. Yeah, you could argue that is very much the opposite mm -hmm. here in that... <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, look what happened there. Yeah. I do love the moment, though, where one Bene Gesserit says, This is a bloodline we're supposed to maintain about the Harkonnens, which I thought was a hilarious kind of commentary on the Harkonnens, but we'll talk about the Harkonnens again. Other than making the Kwisatz Hater Act, I'm not exactly sure what the eugenics program is for. I think it's mainly for that. <laughs> that is the sole purpose of yeah. their eugenics program, and they've been maintaining it for mm -hmm. centuries, mm -hmm. at least. Yes, it exists to create a perfect being and a messiah figure, effectively. Oh, also, some of the magic that Jessica didn't do was she was supposed to have a girl, but she had Paul instead, and they, Benny Jester are very annoyed with her for having a boy who could potentially become the Crusades hater act, and I think at the beginning they accused her of trying to do that outside of their... Uh, Plan. Yeah, but at the beginning, they also thought that it wouldn't be possible. They were upset at her for having a son mm -hmm. because she was supposed to have a daughter who could be bred to another house member to create to get them a few steps further. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, mm -hmm. their belief was that Paul, in being born male, mm -hmm. was useless to their plan. He wasn't. Mm -hmm. He wasn't far enough along the stage. I mean, this again, obviously proves to be wrong on their part mm -hmm. because he is. It's. I should note further that with her molecule-changing ability, she can, in fact, somehow choose uh, which sperm gets to the egg, I guess. Or what the sex of her child is, yeah. yeah. So that's the power that she has. She chooses to... It's mentioned how she chooses to have a son, partially to some extent because how she thinks she might be able to have the Messiah figure, although it actually has less to do with that and more to do with the fact that Duke Let Leto Atreides, um, Paul's father wanted a son, and she's very much in love with him, despite being a concubine rather than a wife. Now, the Bene Gesserit are not represented as great people here. Nope. Jessica is on the good side, but the Reverend Mother mm -hmm. and others are shown as meddlesome, mm -hmm. and maybe not with the universe's best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to morality in this novel, which is very black and white. <laughs> Yeah. In some instances. I'd like to point out that the name Bene Gesserit is, I believe, Latin for he or she bears well, carries well. No, I, 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 to your comment about it being black and white, though, I mean, it does show quite strongly. I mean, Paul and House Atreides are portrayed as being good. The Harkonnens are not! The, Har <laughs> the Harkonnens are not only portrayed as being bad, just about everything that can be done to make them seem worse is done. Oh my god, they're so evil they could be twirling mustaches. Yeah, like, seriously. I mean, they're portrayed as cruel and manipulative and brutal, and they host gladiatorial games just for the Pedophilic. sake of... Pedophilic. 
I mean, Baron Harkonnen Fat. is <laughs> Baron Harkonnen is chronically obese pedophile, mm-hmm. and I think that's very much every aspect of that is very much constructed to make him seem as unappealing and grotesque as possible. Yes, we have to talk about Baron <laughs> Harkonnen because he's this looming. Literally looming figure over this entire novel. For the moment he first waddles in on his suspensors, the fat shaming is horrible. <laughs> this is a man in every scene he's in, he either has eaten, mm-hmm. is eating, is about to eat, or is thinking about eating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marie, Marie mentioned suspensors just to kind of drill home the point. He's described as being so obese that he's, his weight is actually supported by these special hover platforms yep. to make it possible for him to move about. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of so cartoonishly evil yeah. that he ends up being compelling by coming out the other side. <laughs> yeah. Almost, yeah. yeah. Like, it's weird how that works. Mm-hmm. Because, he, I mean, as a villain, he shouldn't work. He should be so laughable. Mm-hmm. But he does actually feel intimidating and threatening. Mm-hmm. It even comes down to his name. He is the only character mm-hmm. with a Russian name mm-hmm. in this novel. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. Again, it's probably some Cold War paranoia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and his offspring or relatives are not much better. There's um, Fade Rautha, who's sort of... His nephew, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Who's kind of some crazy, murderous... He's a sadist, effectively. Yeah. Like, he delights in causing pain. As does his older brother, I think. I can't remember his older brother's Beast name. Beast Rabin. Yeah. Yeah. Who, uh, his name should tell you everything about him. <laughs> I think uh, the interesting thing about the two the two nephews is Beast Rabin is just cruel for the sake of cruel, whereas the younger nephew, we just said... Fade Rautha. Fade Rautha <laughs> is cruel, but he's also cunning. So mm-hmm. he's kind of the Baron's chosen successor, as it were. Like the the somewhat, if you think about it, hilarious plan to kill the Baron of having a small boy with a poison tack on his thigh <laughs> brought to him, which, my goodness, that says a lot, everything about them. <laughs> yeah, his own nephew conspires to kill the Baron at one point just because he's impatient to succeed him. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of the Harkonnen progeny are bad people. Well, Paul Atreides is, yeah. is uh, related to them. So. Yeah, it, it is revealed at, towards the end of the book that um, the Bene Gesserit did actually manage to get one of their sisters to seduce Baron Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. That sister gave birth to Jessica, who's mm-hmm. Paul's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't know that at the beginning. That's revealed closer towards the end making Paul the Baron's grandson. And everybody collectively goes, ew. <laughs> Effectively, yes. <laughs> well, there's the nature versus nurture thing, and that we're way on the side of nurture in this yeah. novel. I guess the Harkonnens are not helped by the fact that Gaidi Prime, their home world, is a hell planet, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. <laughs> but you can't say it's entirely on the side of nurture, otherwise there can't be a eugenics program that means anything. True. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you, you both just kind of hit the nail on the head. It's very much analyzing the debate. It's analyzing the different forms that debate could take. I mean, if you believe exclusively in the nurture side, then you can account for some of the characters. If you ex- if you take into account exclusively the nature side, you can only account for some of the others. So you need to take elements of both for this narrative to make sense. Yep. And uh, the repressed population of... What's the... What's the place? The Harkonnen something. Yeah. Gaidi Prime. Yeah, that. Well, there's also the, the argument behind why the Sardaukar, the Emperor's troops, are such good soldiers is because 
they they come people from who were <laughs> raised on this prison planet. Yeah. So only the toughest, strongest, yeah. nastiest survive. And the only place worse to live in than the prison planet is, is in Dune. fact Arrakis. <laughs> <laughs> which is why the Fremen are even more badass yeah. than the badass Sardaukar. <laughs> Well, one yeah. one part about that too, and this goes into the nature nurture thing. Actually, um, it talks about cultural nurturing to some extent. Um, the Sardauker are the the Sardauker are considered the best soldiers in the galaxy until they encounter the Fremen. And the reason the Fremen are even better is because a they're raised in harsher conditions, and b the Fremen are actually portrayed as willing to sacrifice for the greater good of the culture. They're portrayed as being so dangerous because they place their culture above their own lives where the Sardauker take the opposite view, mm -hmm. which is why they're doomed to fail because they're not willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. The Emperor would be uh, the big bad guy. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the uh, twists and turns of the plot in the political arena because so much of it takes place off screen mm -hmm. is in some places very convoluted yeah. and confusing and that I'm not sure... How the Emperor thought his plan would possibly work. <laughs> and it's a very strange plan in its execution. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. He wanted to basically kill off the Atreides for reasons, is all I could understand. He got the Harkonnens to do it. I think it was um, something to do with the Bene Gesserit. It mentioned, I, I'm, I'm positive it references the Emperor feeling guilty over it and actually liking Duke Atreides. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. But because the Bene Gesserit convinced him that it needs to be done, he's mm -hmm. kind of forced into this position, mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting part of the novel because it shows just how much power the Bene Gesserit have mm -hmm. if they what? can force the Emperor to do something he doesn't want to do. Well, a lot of this betrayal and attack that takes place in the midpoint of the book can be argued being an attempt to destroy Paul Atreides mm -hmm. in the knowledge that he's going to mm -hmm. possibly be, be the control. wrong Kwisatz Cataract, even though it's just a little bit overkill and fails spectacularly. Yep. <laughs> Could uh, maybe talk about the power of the Bene Gesserit leaders, who's sort of the interesting view of woman. Oh, the gender <laughs> dynamics in this novel. They are somewhat <laughs> problematic, yeah. It's, um... I mean, yeah, because it, females, as a female, I can obviously we are only capable of uh, manipulating other people into doing something. That's why you go through years of training because any other way will not work. Apparently, well, if you're female, the largest <laughs> problem. I mean, there are many problems with the gender dynamics for sure. I think the largest one, or one of the largest ones, comes down to the fact that women are only able of having agency through manipulation. Mm -hmm. um, they're not portrayed as strong or onstruck front. They're portrayed as manipulative and backstabbing and scheming. Mm -hmm. um, and the second part of that is that the entire Bene Gesserit sisterhood is working to create a messiah figure that is a male member of their order. So this entire female order exists just to create a man. And that's, again, that's a very problematic yeah. aspect of gender politics. Chanai can only be actualized. I'm sorry, did you want to say that bit, Michael? <laughs> well, Chanai is the Fremen who yeah. Paul ends up marrying, mm -hmm. and that's really her only function mm -hmm. in this novel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is one really important female character who's Alia, mm -hmm. produced through another accident. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and possibly sister. even more powerful than Paul in terms mm -hmm. of her powers. Because she's a three-year-old who acts like a 20-year-old. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, her, her pre-cognitive able to see all these path powers um, manifest before she's even born. She's mm -hmm. just a fetus and this is developing. So she's born 
fully conscious, able to draw on knowledge that's many times beyond her. And I think it's interesting that she's the one who ends up killing Baron Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, one character mm-hmm. does not tip the scales. She's also called a witch. Yes. Yeah, the, um, the Bene Gesserit consider her a form of heresy because she should not be... Something about her being conscious before she's born, I am. The Fremen don't exactly like her either. Nobody no. likes her. <laughs> no, the Fremen accept her because they consider her one of their own, but they're still leery of her. Yeah, she's, she's kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah, and there's a whole lot of gender-based mysticism surrounding the Kwisatz Haderach and that he's supposed to be able to access mm-hmm. powers that women are not strong enough to be able to control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the Princess Erlen, who's the alleged recorder of Paul's life, shows up at the end doesn't do much. <laughs> well, she, she shows up at the end as a plot device in that Paul marries her to forge a galactic alliance that he controls. Um, but he flat out tells her, I don't love you. You're my wife in name only. I'll take Chani as my concubine, but she's really my wife. So, I mean, it, it very much a character, a female character who comes out of nowhere, does nothing wrong, and yet gets completely shafted by the narrative. But she sounds pretty sexy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, after all of this... This is a book worth reading, a very complex oh, yeah. narrative that you can reread and find new stuff in all the time. Mm-hmm. It's definitely deserving of the praise that it got. Mm-hmm. I think it is. I, mean, I think one thing about the gender politics, some of it, unfortunately, is probably intentional. I think a lot of it was accidental. I don't think Frank Herbert was overtly trying to be sexist. And I mean, obviously, that doesn't excuse the sexism that's in the narrative. But it does mean that the book's at least not consciously launching an attack. It's more the short-sightedness that led to these things. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a lot more going on to the book than that. Mm-hmm. That's the other part of it, too. Which is why it's still worth reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it has a definite good reward when you come out at the end of it. It has an incredible atmosphere to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I've... I've never been so thirsty while reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> I have come across several reference to, mm-hmm. references to it as the best science fiction novel ever. I, I would certainly say I agree. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best I've ever read. It's one of the best novels I've ever read, never mind science fiction novels. Mm-hmm. Just, again, because of the depth and complexity. Which, of course, brings us to the fact that Dune is part of a series. Alas, uh, alack, a day. <laughs> yeah, don't read the series. Just don't. Um, Dune works perfectly as a standalone. It's fine as it is. Everything that comes after just ruins everything that is wonderful about the book itself. I can only say that the sequels to this are a long string of disappointments, which carry on after Frank Herbert himself died and mm-hmm. stopped writing them. Mm-hmm. You will see... Other Dune books by his son, Brian Herbert, uh, usually co-written with Kevin J. Anderson. Don't read those. (laughs) (laughs) I won't. (laughs) Uh, They are the kind of things where they set up prequel situations to explain situations in this novel that ruin the impact of those scenes in retrospect. the moon bowl, I think you told me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the bull that that wounded Duke Atreides is like a mutated bull thing oh, from another planet. See, that there's, just ruins that. There's a bunch <laughs> of stuff with Baron Harkonnen when he's younger, which is frankly embarrassing. Sounds a little creepy, yeah. Uh, there's a series about the Butlerian Jihad, which 
manages to put the feud between House Atreides and House Harkin that is happening mm. from back then in the most lame way possible. <laughs> I mean, again, like, think about the Butlerian Jihad just as an example. I mean, very little details given on it. I mean, you're only given a vague, the vaguest impression of what's ha- what even happened. That's why it's such a terrifying event. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very much a... Le- One thing this book does very well is less is more. Like it does more, it gives you more of an impact with less information and just expanding on that information. I don't see doing anything but wrecking it. Yeah. The unfortunate thing about Dune is that after its publication, just about anything that has to do with it has been a disappointment. There would be not one, but two film adaptations of Dune. Mm-hmm. One's a miniseries. One from the 1980s by David Lynch, which is terrible (laughs) despite the fact that frank herbert enjoyed it yes the set design is so bizarre the plot is nonsensical there are additions that make it even that basically harm the narrative even more and make it less sense there's a mini series which had the space to tell the story in a coherent way and yet didn't chooses i think (laughs) spends most of its budget on William Hurt, which does not go to actors or set design or anything else. And it is cringeworthy mm-hmm. to watch. Which is a shame, because it is such a rich source material. Yeah, the legacy of Dune does not lie in a franchise that would come out of it. The video game was fun. True. You could run over people with the harvesters. <laughs> well, I, I think I agree, though. The legacy of Dune is very much Dune the novel, not Dune the series. And the influence it had on later science fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, the influence it's still having. I mean, mm-hmm. I think everybody who writes or wants to write science fiction still considers this required reading. So, since we never know how to close off these things... Yeah. <laughs> is there a good quote from Dune we could use? I don't know. <laughs> I think a good way to close it off is just if there's any topic you're interested in, it's pretty much addressed in Dune. Religion, politics, sociology, psychology, narrative, world building, ecology, science, like any anything that can be explored, any area of human endeavor impacts this novel in some way. Maybe you'll want to consider this book your own, Gom Jabbar, and you'll have to read it to figure out what I'm talking about. Aha! <laughs> But I wouldn't say it's that unpleasant, so it's probably an unfair thing to say about it. <laughs> All right. It's probably a good place to close. Uh, yeah, I think we'll end there. This has been the One Last Sketch podcast. Mm-hmm. If you want to listen to more episodes or read some articles on related topics, you can go to my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. You can also listen to past episodes on iTunes and on Stitcher. If you want to read about medical stuff, Marie has a blog. I do, and uh, we even talked about William Hurt on that one, too. Theatropexy.wordpress.com Thank you for listening, and if you like this podcast, recommend it.